The Lord be with you. It is my joy and great pleasure to be here today among friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, and colleagues. Uh, it's good to see Christine Pohl here today and others. And it's wonderful that uh, Dr. Winfield Bevins has asked me. I can tell you stories about him of years ago, but just see me after chapel and we'll, we'll talk about those things. I'm so um, thrilled to be here at the Convergence Conference because I do believe that Christ has risen and when Christ rises, we converge. And so uh, I was going to begin my sermon with uh, now, uh, an illustration from Flannery O'Connor. My husband says I'm either with the hermeneutic of Tolkien or Flannery O'Connor. And today is neither because I, I revisited the short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, and it's so brutal. And I thought, these are brutal times. Jennifer was saying that to me, and I said, yes, we'll skip that. So we have the title, but I'm not going into the story. You should just read, read the story when you, when you have time. In the beginning of the 20th century, and throughout most of that century, the West was the center of Christianity. It was a vision of progress and institution building. Uh, there was the great Edinburgh Conference of 1910, the mission conference there. Unity was on everybody's mind and mission. Unity for the sake of mission. You had the rise of large organizations and institutions like the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, the National Association of Evangelicals, and um, huge buildings were built to house uh, these organizations. And, and denominations, uh, Protestant denominations in the United States, were huge and growing, and they, they built large complexes and headquarters and campaigns, and Southern Baptists had a Sunday school campaign in 1954 called A Million More in 54. And they got it, a million more in 54. We don't quite say those things these days. Um, and groups such as Pentecostalism, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, were barely on the radar screen. We certainly were not in Edinburgh 1910. We were, however, at Edinburgh 2010. I was with my Asbury colleagues there. And of course, like the Orthodox do in ecumenical meetings, we Pentecostals had to do a minority report. And it's in the documents. <laughs> it's always good to do that. Now, at the beginning of the 21st century, everything seems to have changed. The axis of Christianity has shifted from the global north uh, to the south. The visions of progress that guided our um, buildings and programs seem to have dissipated. Large institutions are skeletal remains. Go to the National Council of Churches on Riverside Drive offices and you will find one or two offices that are being actually used by the National Council of Churches and other parts are being used like New York Theological Seminary is now there. And if you were to go to places where there are mainline denomination uh, headquarters and they're on skeletal staffs and skeletal budgets. So we are in a time when um, we are in some ways asking questions like, well, will this denomination survive? I remember hearing someone from the Church of Scotland at the Edinburgh 2010 meeting 
say, um, we just had a general synod, I think they call it, and um, at the church in the Church of Scotland, and we have decided we're dying. But as all uh, good Scottish Reformed, we will die decently and in order. So we have a dying plan. And I remember there was a young woman from uh, an Asian country sitting in front of me at that moment. And she goes, what did he say? Dying? And they're planning on it? And I said, yeah, yeah. And, and some things have to die. Uh, it's not that all things have to have an ongoing life. Some things die, some things live. So we're in, I think we're in this liminal state of things dying, but also things coming alive, things being resurrected, new forms of being church, new forms of unity, uh, new ways of being Christian, so that the, the face of Christianity now is a, a, a non-white female person living in the global south. That is the dominant face of Christianity, one in every 12 people in the world is Pentecostal. So that's a, a very different change in just 100 years or so. We're also seeing, though, I think, some um, the death of hope and, and uh, questions about survival, not just in the churches, but also in our, in our larger society. And that bears down on us. I don't know about you, but it bears down on me in uh, fear, uh, tribalism, visions of global unity giving way to rabid uh, nationalism. There's a sense there that um, we are not well and that things are not well. And questions of survival, will this democracy survive? Will this part of the world survive intact? And we have a tendency, I think, to want to hide and to find the safe group, I know I do, and to purge ourselves of the other. I saw this young woman's tweet the other day. She said, I have purged my feed from all evangelicals. I think I'm safe now. And I thought, oh, honey, that's so awful. <laughs> you know, I think that you could do with some evangelical friends. But in her mind, evangelicals were um, unsafe, they triggered, they were uh, not good for her emotional stability. So she would just block, you know, you can block people, block people, mute people out of our lives. The Lord is not calling us to that. Uh, we are not allowed to purge ourselves of the other. Instead, we are to strive for unity. A dismembered body is a very broken and dying body. But in Martin Luther King's famous sermon, A Knock at Midnight, that I often go back to, he said in the 1960s, he said, we live in a time of darkness so deep we can barely see which way to turn. A time when paralyzing fears harrow people by day and haunt them by night. If ever there was an apt description, I think for our day in 2018, King's words rang true. We have the caravan coming from Central America looking for safe homes. We have uh, Syrian refugees, Iraq refugees. And in some ways, I think they are a mirror for all of us, that we are refugees from the towers of modernity that have fallen and left us in, out into some form of being um, displaced or dislocated. 
in the words of Matthew Arnold, we're wandering between two worlds. One that's dead, if you want to call it modernity or whatever you want to call it, and the other that's just powerless to be born. And we feel in the, these times this paralyzing fear. We have so much knowledge. As Walter Brueggemann said, knowledge used to be power, but now it's, it is powerlessness. The more knowledge we get, the more I know about, the more I fear that I just have nothing to offer or that I fear paralyzed. So there are places now, I think, where hope goes to die. Maybe the internet is a place where hope goes to die. Facebook certainly is. Uh, and there are places, though, where, you know, I think of uh, places of mass incarceration, that the United States has a little over 4% of the world's population, but 22% of the incarcerated. And I met someone here today is working to be um, a, hospital, uh, a prison chaplain, which is such a wonderful vocation. But there is just places where uh, the light dies, hope is forsaken. A year ago, I went to the infamous Lee Prison in South Carolina. Well, I went to the hospital outside of it. They told me my nephew had committed suicide there as a prisoner. I am not sure if it was suicide. And I remember taking my finger and tracing the line in which he was strangled or hung and remembering him as a little baby, thinking, I had so much hope for you. I had so much hope for you. Hope dies sometimes, doesn't it? It dies in refugee camps. It dies in prisons. It dies in families. It dies in marriages. And it dies in our hearts. And it dies sometimes in our churches. The text of Matthew chapter 24 is a place where hope um, seems to have died. If you know, we all know the story of the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the disciples had visions of grandeur and illusions of empire, so to speak. And they understood the prophecies of the Old Testament saying that the Messiah would come, even the, the prophecy that we had read today. And there would be peace on the earth and there would be no more death and there would be the redeemed and, and, and peace would reign forever. They're jockeying for position, some on the right, some on the left. And as they move into this week, their hopes begin to be shattered. The arrest of Jesus, his brutal execution, and his burial. So we have these two disciples now on the third day, which we know, looking back, as the day of resurrection. These disciples at that time were not so sure. They had heard rumors, but they were from women. And who believes women? So they had the death of hope. And like all people, when you have hope dashed, you seek to go back home or to find the safe place. So I believe this journey to Emmaus was, let's just get back out of Jerusalem. This is where hope has died. Let's move into this little village of Emmaus and find some shelter, find some solace. So they're on the way to Emmaus, and a stranger comes up and asks them what what are they talking about? And, and they begin to describe to him what had happened in Jerusalem and uh, the rumors of, of, um, of the resurrection. And they said to him, we had hoped. We had hoped. 
And he says, oh, you foolish ones. And he begins to give them uh, an understanding of the scripture. So this stranger now is coming in as their teacher. And he's instructing them and opening, the, the text says he opened the scriptures to them from Moses all the way to Jesus. And, and they and began to see. And later on, reflecting, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? This stranger was welcomed. What I love about this text is the stranger was welcomed by these disciples even though they were in pain. When I have been overwhelmed with pain, I don't feel like talking or I don't feel like someone getting into my space. They opened up their space in their state of hopelessness and gave room for the stranger to come in. And then Jesus becomes the teacher. And then they open up a broader space Christine Cole, and they offer hospitality. Come on in, have bread with us. So he moves here from the, the stranger to the instructor to the guest. And as he is breaking the bread, he, they hand him the bread, but he takes it upon himself. He's the guest, but he takes it upon himself to become the host. And this wonderful Eucharistic image here of he, he lifts the bread and blesses it and breaks it and disappears from their sight. Wow! Can you imagine? And they don't even wait. They go back where hope had died to give the news that they had seen the Lord. We um, live again in this time of hope dying it dies everywhere around us. And, and sometimes I know it dies within us. How many times have you said and have I said, I had hoped, I had hoped, or we had hoped. I'd hoped that church plant worked out. I'd hoped this had gone better. I'd hoped my family would have had this. I'd hoped, I had hoped, I had hoped. And we find ourselves losing heart or even the temptation to despair. We look for safe places. I know I do. Nature is my safe place. And if I could, I would just go off the grid. My husband and I were up in Glacier this summer. And I told him, can we just stay here and not go home? Like, I'm sure that there's a place we could just keep a tent and never leave Glacier. I was just so much in a zone of peace and solace. I didn't look at the news. It was a time of just blessed ignorance. We're not allowed that generally speaking, to live that way. So now is not the time, brothers and sisters, to retreat. And even when we're tempted to, the Lord comes alongside of us and says, what are you talking about? What's going on? Why are you hurting? Why are you sad? And let us learn to welcome the stranger who comes. And I love this convergence here on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has promised that he would not leave us orphaned, that he would come. So now we have the Holy Spirit, the pedagogue, who has been sent to walk alongside of us, the second Jesus, to lead us into all truth. And so the Holy Spirit is no longer the stranger, but the Holy Spirit is the, the companion and also the host in many ways to us. But the Lord and the, uh, doesn't just send us the Spirit, he sends us brothers and sisters in the body in Christ. And I just love the story here because uh, you have Jesus opening up the scriptures to them from Moses to, uh, the res up to the resurrection. And I believe that we need the people with us 
who are the scripture people. This is the day of Reformation Day. We need the evangelical scripture people. And as much as I love the liturgy, I love what we call after the Reformation. It's set free the word and the preaching of the word. And I love it when that word dances over a congregation and we hear, hear this word. I need to hear that word. I need the preaching and the teaching of the scripture. So I have a hard time doing a homily, as you can tell. Also, we need those charismatics to come along, don't we? Winfield was telling me about someone who came up to him at the New Room Conference with a distinct word of knowledge that led to his healing, a dramatic, immediate healing. I just need those folk. I do. Like, I have a word for you. Uh, or I, I sense this. And, and when I do that, I, I do it with fear and trepidation. And usually the Lord asks me to do it in places where it's not comfortable. I was at an evangelical conference recently and I had a word for someone and that's not the place for it. But I just went ahead to that person and what do I have to lose? And we used to have a woman in our church. She now was a death row, a chaplain on death row in Texas after she left seminary. But when she was in our church, um, she would sometimes get it wrong. But she would say, I think I got that wrong, but you discern. But one time she took uh, our younger daughter aside, our daughter aside who, who was about 13, and she had our daughter by the hand. She was speaking to her. And then we asked our daughter on the way home from church, well, because we were always concerned about Bev. You know, what did Bev say? And they said, um, she said, Mom and Dad, I was writing in my journal last night questions for God. I wrote five questions. And she said, Bev told me, you wrote some questions last night for God. You wrote five questions. Here are the questions and here are the answers. She said, in the order I wrote them. In the order I wrote them. We need the people of the Spirit and we need also the people of the table. Because here at the table, when the Lord, the host, the, the, the one who brings and opens our eyes as the breaking of the bread to the body of Christ, um, we need that liminal space. The Lord invites us to his table. Here our eyes are opened. I believe that the space around the table is thin space. And I love the orthodox theology there as we're moving into All Saints Day, is that this table extends into eternity and it goes back into history and the saints from the past are there with us and the future is there and we're all there together. And we are in, uh, are we in the past? Yes. Are we in the future? Yes. Are we in the present? Yes. We're at the Lord's table. So as you come to the table today, come asking the Lord to feel, fill you with hope, to open your eyes so that you can see not just the despair, not just the darkness, but to see the beauty of the body of Christ, to see the beauty of God's creation, to see the wonder of that world that is yet to come. I could just live in that Isaiah text when the shroud that covers all nations will be removed. 
and there will be the death of death. So as you come this morning, allow the end to draw near. For when the end draws near, everything else is relativized. Everything else is relativized in light of the end. The Lord be with you.